Welcome to In Conversation, the regular <laughs> podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is the second episode of a series, an occasional series, What has the UK ever done for the European Union? And my guest is Franz van Dahl. Franz van Dahl is a former Belgian permanent representative to the European Union, a former ambassador of Belgium to NATO, ambassador also to the United States for Belgium, and most recently from 2009-2014, Chief of Staff, Chef de Cabinet of the first ever President of the European Council, uh, Herman van Rompuy. Franz, thank you for doing this. I'd like to cast our minds back to January 1973. Uh, you were already in the, in the Foreign Service of Belgium. Uh, the UK had just joined the European Union long, alongside Denmark and Ireland, of course. What was the feeling around the, the table of the six founding fathers at the idea of the UK joining the European Union? Was it anxiety? Was it trepidation? Was it enthusiasm? Was it excite, excitement? What was the mood just as the UK was joining? Uh, on the eve of... Uh uh, Great Britain's accession. Uh, I remember as a young diplomat uh, still meeting uh, with uh, the six ambassadors of, of old. The feeling was uh, elation. Okay. Uh, the, the, the feeling was certainly uh, elation because the, the British accession had been blocked basically by uh, General de Gaulle and everybody was uh, happy that this particular stumbling block had been uh, eliminated. Now, as far as my own country is concerned, together with the Dutch, we probably have been the strongest uh, advocate of uh, UK accession. And we had, at the time, uh, two fundamental reasons, which I think are still valid. First, there were a number, an important number of uh, economic reasons, which are still very much and even more there today. And the second reason was that we thought that we were importing an additional uh, element for balancing the, uh, the distribution of power inside the Union. Whether that calculus was exact remains to be seen, because I don't think uh, my elders had foreseen at that time that, it, uh, that uh, British uh, participation, membership of the European Union, would result in strong tensions between uh, Britain as a proud nation-state on the one hand and the Brussels institutions on the other hand. So you can't win them all. Right. And did the UK kind of hit the ground running? As of day one, it wanted to really show everybody around the table the important new uh, member state that it thought it was and maybe it still is? Or on the contrary, did they, did they show some kinds of some signs of humility and waited to, to learn how the ropes were? No, no. The, from, the, from day one, uh, the Brits wanted to make a mark, and rightly so. They were, uh, after all, uh, one of the very big uh, kids on the block. <laughs> but that period didn't last too long because you may remember that, uh, contrary to all expectations, uh, Labour won the election and uh, the Labour leader of the time had promised a renegotiation. And so we had to go through uh, all the, the hooplas of a renegotiation, which wasn't very much a renegotiation, but which was presented as being a renegotiation. But uh, even if the result was uh, rather uh, modest and acceptable, after all, for both parties, it took a lot of uh, political energy out of the out of the system. So uh, this first period was already one of uh, complication. Was already one of uh, complexity. 
complexities deriving from uh, British membership. membership. Was that the first sign then maybe of, of the rest of the EU realising that the UK would be a, let's call it a challenging partner, if not a, a difficult partner, because as soon as they arrived in the club, they're already resetting the rules or re, at least reconsidering membership? Well, um, that they were trying to, to push negotiations in the sense of their own advantage, that's part of the game. Everybody was and everybody is still doing that. Uh, what we had un underestimated, I remember, is that um, the British government of the day never made a determined effort, as the whole political class has never done, a determined effort to explain to the British public what the implications of accession were, implications of an economic immediate nature on the one hand, implications uh, for further integration, which was very much part of the project uh, to which the Brits had gained admission. So in effect, the first couple of years of UK membership were sort of not exactly lost, but weren't, weren't firing on all pistons because of the 1975 referendum. But once that referendum was out of the way and won by a pretty clear majority, as you know, two to one, was it then business back to normal? Did the, did the, the, the original six and now, of course, Ireland and Denmark re-embrace the UK as a full member? Well, uh, I think that uh, the British government, and by British government I mean in the first place the, the wider administration, uh, was uh, totally correct with what they had bargained for, and they cooperated in uh, different fields, but in other fields they were uh, reticent. But again, reticence on certain fields and enthusiasm on other fields is uh, something which <coughs> was to be expected. I remember further down the road, for instance, when uh, Europe was hit uh, by a wave of uh, terrorism mm -hmm. and we had been woken up, uh, we had been woken up to the fact by 9-11 that uh, at that time, and I was chairing the Committee of Permanent Representatives in the wake of 9-11, uh, that my strongest allies to reinforce the uh, um, fight, the common fight against terrorism and creating the, the right kind of tools to do so, my strongest ally was, certainly was the United Kingdom. It's easy to forget, isn't it? But we, we for the first 30 years of the uh, of the Union's existence, there was a unanimity uh, across the board in practically, I think, every sphere of, uh, of activity. And it was only with the single act in 86, right, that qualified majority voting was introduced more or less for the first time. How important was the UK's role in that? Was, were they pushing at an open door, the idea of deblocking so many dossiers which had been blocked because of unanimity? Or were they, were they actually fighting a kind <coughs> of a lone battle which, which ultimately other member states joined? Well, uh, I think that the, that Great Britain, particularly in the years of uh, Margaret Thatcher, played an important role in adjusting, modifying uh, the mindset uh, of a number of European decision makers as far as the international economy was concerned. One should never forget that uh, Mrs. Thatcher was the inventor of what I 
still today called the Thatcher model, which was basically saying, uh, come to Britain, pay less taxes, you have less red tape and you can still do Europe. <laughs> By the way, this is exactly the model which is in the process of being, being destroyed right now. Right. But she brought, I think, although some of us didn't like it too much because it sounded too liberal and not enough social, but uh, it remains a fact that Britain and Thatcher changed a bit the, the frame of mind about growth, about the economy. Mm -hmm. And I think in the end, this has been, uh, uh, for the economy at least, a plus. It has left us, though, with a deficit which is still there in the sense that parts of our public opinion on the continent, and mm. probably even in Britain, feel that Europe has been too much active on the uh, economic right. uh, capital side and not enough on the social, social side. side right. To which the answer is that uh, social harmonization is still a matter to be decided by unanimity, unanimity which is rarely found. Right. Fast forward, uh, France, to 1985. Jacques Delors becomes president of the European Commission, and it's the launch of the now famous single market program, where he appoints, maybe by accident or maybe by clear design, a British commissioner, British Conservative Party commissioner, to, to lead that particular dossier. It's very easy for pro-Europeans in Britain sometimes to maybe to exaggerate, overstate the, the, the influence of, of the UK in that particular area of the single market. How do you evaluate the, the contribution of the UK in pushing the single market project forward? Well, I think in, in the end, uh, Britain uh, came down on the right side, being in favour of opening the internal market, given all the economic benefits which uh, uh, would derive from it. But I remember in the negotiations of the Act Unique and the Single Act, whatever that means, yeah. that in these negotiations, on a number of points, Mrs. Thatcher was quite, uh, quite hesitant. And I, th I don't know exactly why, I'm, uh, I wasn't familiar enough at the time with the uh, ins and outs of British politics, but it may have, but that's just me surmising that, it may have uh, had to do something with the fact that even then, in the Conservative Party, you had a rather protectionist or super-nationalist kind of wing. Right. Uh, that may have entered into her calculus, but we were all a bit astonished, I remember at the time in Luxembourg, that on a number of points she was not as forthcoming as we had expected her to be. How interesting. Okay. Well, and then moving on then to another area, enlargement, where again, it is often stated that um, the UK had a particularly influential role in this so-called widening debate. I remember myself at the time the debate was, wasn't it, about widening or deepening, and then all of a sudden it became a debate about widening and deepening, and the Brits were seen by many as championing, obviously, the enlargement of these new member states, especially in East Central Europe. However, critics of the UK were saying they did it for, for very nefarious uh, motives. They were trying to, to weaken the, the European Union. What's your take on that? Well, uh, I know that uh, that particular suspicion has always been there and something of it may be true, but I don't have the ways and means to look into the, into the brains and the hearts of uh, other people. Uh, still, it remains that together with a number of other countries, uh, on the continent, we were in favor of enlargement for the very simple reason that we wanted to offer these uh, countries coming out like the proverbial spy out of the cold. We wanted to give them a um, perspective towards the future, and that perspective 
we felt was needed to prevent uh, <coughs> frictions and wars on the other side of the continent. And this had been triggered basically by the Yugoslav, uh, by the Yugoslav <coughs> civil war, that we know how much, uh, how much difficulties could stem from an unabsorbed, unresolved past. And so we all thought that uh, when we took these decisions, and I think it was in, in Helsinki and later in, in, in Copenhagen, that, um, that it was the right thing to do. Britain was very much part in favor of this widening, like most of us, for the reasons I mentioned to you. They may have had uh, thoughts at the back of their mind, but um, that I, I'm, uh, I have not been a party to. What we added with some other countries was that deep, that widening had been compensated by deepening. Right. It's like, like a sailing boat. The wider the deck is, the deeper the keel has to be. It's as simple as that. Right. And so we fought for that with a number of countries, and that led to a whole series of new treaties, the Treaty of Maastricht, the Treaty of Amsterdam, the Treaty of Nice, uh, of which, for which I was Belgium's negotiator, which is probably the worst treaty ever negotiated. And then uh, after that, the convention, the constitution, which was uh, brought down and replaced by the Treaty of Lisbon. So there has been a constant effort over so many years to compensate mm. Uh, widening by deepening and uh, I must say that Britain during that period was not the greatest uh, enthusiast we uh, uh, enthusiast of uh, uh, widening but as they knew that the rapport de force and the requirements were there they ended up accepting that a certain deepening had to be paid as a price for widening. But when you say then the compensation and a price be paid, it sounds a bit transactional, France. It sounds almost like it was a negotiation. We'll give you that if you give us this in, in exchange. But uh, I'm trying to work out whether that was a kind of a trade-off that the, the proponents and the people less keen enlargement engaged in with their eyes wide open, or, or could you make a more kind of substantive intellectual case well, that you had to do uh, the two together? I am not a transactionalist as far as Europe is concerned, uh, but many other people are. And so you have to always make sure that you present it in, in such a way that uh, the, the lesser enthusiasts still uh, join in because, well, they have their own, their own reasons and their own uh, cal calculations. Uh, I, for one, but that is uh, a, a question of, of conviction, I found that enlargement was a necessity and I found that uh, deepening further uh, was a necessity and still is uh, today. Uh, but that is a question of uh, both personal conviction and of my way of seeing where the, the interests of my own country lie. Right. Moving on then to, to foreign security policy, even even uh, defence policy, if you like. Um, we all know the UK is a permanent member of the Security Council of the United Nations. It sees itself certainly still, maybe sadly so, as a kind of global player on the, on the world stage. How much of a team player was the UK in supporting moves by the EU to develop a more fully-fledged um, foreign policy and security policy? 
I think you have to uh, make a distinction between foreign policy and security policy. Right. As far as foreign policy is concerned, the United Kingdom over all these years has been rather forthcoming to try and do things uh, together because they, uh, London has, uh, were always very much aware of the fact that doing things separately was just a ways to ha uh, the best way not to have any influence. So pragmatically and practically speaking, uh, whenever they felt uh, uh, their influence could be leveraged uh, through doing things together, they, uh, they went for it. Uh, one example being this, uh, this nuclear uh, treaty with, uh, uh, with Iran, which was spearheaded by Federica Mogherini, and which is a case in point that we all felt that doing things together were, uh, meant a plus a win-win-win for everybody. That is on the foreign policy side. Right. The security side was more complicated and still is more complicated because uh, once, uh, once you start trying to do, to integrate or to have more cooperation between different national military forces, so you always end up by the question, how does this translate towards uh, NATO and towards the uh, Americans? Um, the uh, Americans, uh, uh, even today, want the Europeans to invest more in their defense, which they do in a haphazardly kind of way, uh, but they want to do it in, uh, within a NATO framework. Now, many, uh, pro, uh, many people uh, who are interested in further integrating the European uh, Union feel that we should be able to do a number of things together between EU member states, and that is certainly one of the points which President Macron is uh, pushing right now. You have only to look at the people he invited at the July 14 parade yesterday in, uh, in Paris. Uh, the, um, that is um, something uh, where Britain was always uh, hesitant, not as f I don't think that much for ideological reasons, but it, it always brought up the question, how does this relate uh, to, uh, to NATO? How does mm -hmm. it relate to the Americans? Now, in the past, in the times of Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright, there has been a serious attempt to try and score the circle that were the Berlin Plus agreements, which would allow Europeans to use NATO assets if they wanted to undertake uh, a military mission on their own. But that part, which to my mind is the only part which makes sense even for our future now to do a number of things together, militarily speaking, and at the same time maintaining an entente cordiale with uh, the Americans, um, that basis, which was tried then by Madeleine Albright, has unfortunately not been spawning uh, many successive uh, successor moments. Right. Well, let's maybe bring this conversation to, to a conclusion or... Uh, France, by bringing it to, to the current day, its current moment, July 2019, UK is quite possibly on the cusp of leaving the European Union. Uh, and I won't ask you to comment on, on the British politics or even the British economy, but I will ask you to, to give me your views about how you think the EU will, will be different if the UK is no longer a member, both in positive and negative terms. So. Are there any, from an from a EU27 perspective, even from a Belgian perspective, are there any positives to the departure of the UK from the EU? 
Well, uh, I see many negatives, uh, but one positive may be that it will be a bit more easy to, um, with only having the continental countries as members, to do a number of things which the Brits uh, never accepted, which often are uh, elements which belong to getting uh, to 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 progress in, uh, like in the field of defense, to progress uh, in a number of uh, fields. But even if the Brits are not a member of the Union anymore, don't underestimate the difficulty of progressing further, because there are certainly still uh, uh, another number. There are a number of other member countries who have qualms or hesitations or their own kind of policy mix, uh, which uh, doesn't may doesn't imply that whenever Britain is gone everything will be jolly and good. Well you said there were many negatives. Could you give me some of your, your key concerns or the, your, top, your top negatives uh, resulting from the UK departure from the European Union? Well, um, as far as uh, negatives are concerned, our potential relative weight will be lessened. Although, in a way, this, is, this may be compensated by uh, building a kind of a, a closer military cooperation between a number of continental states and Britain. Mm -hmm. That is certainly a view prevailing in, in many military establishments where they know perfectly well that British armed forces are uh, of excellent quality and that Britain remains uh, an important and maybe sometimes an indispensable partner if the Europeans want to undertake some military mission. So that is uh, in terms of compensation, but still I think uh, uh, it will be uh, less difficult to go ahead in the military uh, field. Um, there may be slightly more uh, protectionism. Right. The balance between free traders and protectionism is probably going to tilt slightly more to the protectionist side. And I'm, uh, I'm uh, curious to see how this whole Mercosur uh, negotiation ratification is going to unwind to see where the yeah. cursor, where the balance, uh, balance is. Uh, and uh, I think there will be... Um, but that, I think, uh, are a couple of, uh, uh, of uh, shifts which may stem from Britain leaving the European Union. Well, maybe a last question to shift the focus away briefly from the UK. Do you already see signs, because you know the Council extremely well, the Member States' uh, activity, a repositioning or re-jockeying of position amongst certain Member States? There's a, a vacuum to be filled by the departure of the UK. Do you already see signs of Member States realigning, trying to find a new position? or are they just waiting to see what happens? There is nothing new under the sun in the sense that uh, Britain leaving will basically uh, leave more power in the hands of the Franco-German couple. I mean, that's just mathematical. Uh, still remains then to be seen whether uh, the uh, Paris and Berlin uh, develop enough commonality in action towards the future to use the position of uh, strengthened power they certainly will have. Um, uh, that is, uh, in terms of power distribution, uh, an important, uh, uh, an important change. But one should not forget that having a, f a close Franco-German companionship is very important, but 
uh, it cannot be uh, and it will not be decisive on its own given the, uh, the number of uh, member states which we still have, 27, and uh, the political developments which uh, in a number of other member states may lead to uh, the fact that this kind of Franco-German couple is not welcomed everywhere with the same enthusiasm as in Brussels. Okay, well we have to leave it there. Franz Van Dahl, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you.